Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope. Never Ever Give Up Hope is a show about people who have done that. Every single one of my guests have been at a place in their life where they were almost or actually in a hopeless situation. And yet they, with their attitude and their desire to succeed, they did not allow that to put them into the victim mode. That's what makes this show unique as well, because I believe that everybody has a story. And no matter how bad some of these stories may sound, my guests have been able to turn their situations around and turn it around for good, to learn from it, and then, of course, with passion, share that story to help somebody else. Many of my guests have survived things like extreme poverty, or serious depression or abuse. Sometimes they have had to deal with loss, whether it's financial or family members or their health. But again, every single one has found a way to overcome to be not just a survivor, but a victor. And so it's exciting. Every one of these guests are so exciting. And listeners, if it wasn't for you guys, we wouldn't have a show. So I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you sharing the stories, your feedback. And thank you from four corners of the globe, actually. We're now in 140 countries. So it, we really appreciate it. Today with me, there's no exception. This is going to be exciting because one of the subjects that I think everybody is concerned about. I don't care how old or where you are. Everybody is concerned about finances in one form or another. Even the very, very wealthy have their issues and they have their tips and they have their secrets. And so we are going to talk to a man today who will help us in in this interest. His name is Ken Rupert. He is an educator, a strategist, a life coach, a second-degree financial black belt, and the author of the Financial Black Belt Academy's Financial Self-Defense Training Manual. He also has a financial self-defense training program. Now, that is certainly an intriguing title, and I can't wait to hear what Ken is going to share about that. A little bit about him as a first-generation self-made millionaire, Ken has built his wealth by practicing the financial strategies that he developed and he teaches 
and this is where we're going to talk about today. Welcome, Ken. Well, thank you, Carol. That was a very, uh, very nice introduction and probably sets up the story very well. So I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing and, and being part of your show today. Oh, thank you. That's so kind. We're going to start with a time in your life which could have been totally devastating for you. And I'm sure on some levels it was. But you took, I want you to share that story. And when you do, I know that the secret is you never looked at yourself as being a victim, but found ways to help others through that. And that was that your son was born with a very rare genetic disorder. So share your story with us and how you didn't allow yourself to become the victim. This is a very difficult topic to discuss because there's times when I think back about how difficult it was and and our struggle and uh, you know it wasn't just a struggle to maintain um, hope but it was also a struggle to maintain our relationship uh, you know my wife and I's relationship right, right, was a right. struggle to try to figure out what this meant what 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 why this was happening you know we you when you when you are expecting for your your first child and you know there's a lot of excitement but there's a lot of anxiety that goes along with it and then things start to spiral out of control as they did in our case it's it's overwhelming and quite honestly a lot of guys don't stick around when they have a child with special needs because from an emotional level it's hard for guys to even get to that point even get to a place where they can wrap their mind around it and, and understand that their call to responsibility has just been elevated to a greater level than they ever anticipated I'm really glad you shared that because I think that's a valid point and especially coming from a male. So thank you for that. Oh, well, um, I'm, I'm honest, if nothing else. <laughs> okay. Uh, when we had gone, we were getting ready to have our child. We were about a month out and the doctor, you know, we, we had a follow-up appointment. We were going to do a sonogram because we just noticed that he wasn't growing. Our, at that time, we didn't know it was our son, but we knew that the baby wasn't necessarily progressing and so we got up in the morning went to work like we normally did and that afternoon we came back together and we went to the doctor's office and when he did the sonogram he realized that the baby had stopped moving oh and so so he but he was like buzzing he was trying to take this buzzer and cause it to stimulate the baby and the baby was not responding hmm. so the doctor said look i'm going to send you over for an emergency or you know to do to induce labor and and because he's going to do a lot better outside the womb than he will inside. Okay. So when we got over to the hospital, uh, it wasn't. It didn't take me long. I, if I paid attention to one thing in the birthing classes, it was my job was to watch the monitor and recognize when the contractions were coming on and watch the baby's heartbeat. So that I was doing my job well because <laughs> when the when the contraction hit, I saw his heart rate plummet, and really? that concerned me. So I didn't want to concern my wife, so I told her, I asked her if she was thirsty, and she said she was, and I said, well, let me go out in the hall and get you a glass of water. And I immediately went out into the hallway and found the nurse and said, something's not right, you got to come in and check this out. So the nurse came in, looked at the, the readout, and then she was going to put my wife on oxygen, and my wife's like, I'm doing fine, I'm breathing fine, I don't need oxygen, and I just told her, honey, just take the oxygen. Mm-hmm. And that's when she realized something was wrong. It progressed very quickly. We went to an emergency C-section. When when he was born, they whisked him away. 
we got to the room. My wife couldn't see the baby. Normally, they bring the baby down, but the baby couldn't come out because it was in the NICU. Uh, just a myriad of problems, and, and we we did not hide our head in the sand. Oh. We didn't try to go through the denial process. We knew something was wrong. We didn't know what it was, and we certainly didn't realize what we were in for over the course of the next 18 years because he's 18 years old now. Mm-hmm. So it was a... It was a whirlwind of activity. There was a lot of disappointment. There were, um, you know, angry moments. There was trying to figure out how this could happen when you're expecting your first child. It should be a, a relatively celeb, you know, right. joyous occasion. Right. And this wasn't. Um, unfortunately, we don't have close family, and we were on our own, and uh, it was it was a struggle. Um, and I could take you to a, I'm not going to stay too much on the birthing process because that was pretty painful, but we realized later on that he was going to need surgeries. And we ha- we were put in a position that we had to make a decision that we knew was going to cause our son a great deal of, of pain and recovery. And we had to make that decision. Um, he had, part part of his dis, uh, dis- disability is, it's called Soto syndrome. And it's an overgrowth syndrome. So his his bones grow faster than the average child's bones would grow. But he also had cerebral palsy because of that birth trauma. And that made his muscles tight. So as his muscles were tight and his bones were growing, they were disforming. Mm. And so we had to make the decision of when we were going to go in and get his legs, where they had to actually cut the bones and reposition the leg. And then there would be a lot of recovery with that. So that was a tough decision. Because that's, you know, you're setting your child up for something right, that's really right. hurt. The hardest part, I think, for me, and, and where this kind of took a pivot point was during his first surgery, he had to have his left femur cut and derotated, his left, right and left tibias cut and derotated, and then um, some work done on his, his feet, orthopedically speaking. So it was a lot that he was going to go through, and it was going to easily be three to six months of recovery. As long as, as well as physical therapy, and, and and then just the ongoing process of that. So this this is always the hard part because this is where I realized that daddy's not always going to be around to protect him, and this was the pivot point for me, is when we, I, the doctor asked us which one of us wants to take him back to the operating room, because he figured Daniel would do better if one of us was there, so. I, I being the big man, you know, I'm going to be the strong man. I, I can go back there and handle right. this, and I'm logical and everything, and I can take care of this. So I went back there, and little did I know how much it would crush me. Really? <laughs> yeah. So, because um, I had to lay him on a cold operating table, put the mask over his face, and put him to sleep. And forgive me if I get a little bit emotional about this. No, it's tough. Of course. Now, um, the, speaking of emotion, I can only imagine the full range of emotions you were dealing with. And my question to you as you're talking, I'd like you to address before you continue the story, is was guilt an issue? Oh, yeah. Address yeah, that a little bit and how, and how you dealt with that through this process. Uh, I don't think from my perspective, and I don't know about most guys, but I'll say from my guy's perspective, you're supposed to be the one that solves all the problems, takes care of things, makes things, you know, fixes them, makes them right. And 
you're faced with a situation that you can't fix. Mm. You, there's nothing you can do to change it. And from a guy's perspective, that's extremely difficult. And right. you start realizing that, you know, you were part of creating this situation. So not only did you participate in the creation of the situation, even though you're not responsible for it because, yes. you know, ultimately it comes down to what God wants to do. You, you are part of creating it and you created a situation that you can't solve. Right. And that carries a lot of guilt with it because it's like, I just now I need to make sure my wife is okay and I need to make sure my son's okay right. and I need to make sure that all this works out and that for some reason we can figure out a purpose and, and there's just no answer to it. Right. It, it happens. And there's no answer to it. So it's just, guilt is, a, is an ever-present thing. Sometimes it gets heavier um, and sometimes it gets lighter, but it's always present. Yeah, so I, I had to lay him on the cold operating table, and they said, you know, you can put the mask on him, and, and I was telling him that he's just going to feel some air blow on his face, and he should be going to sleep. Now, he had no clue as to what's come, because he had no frame of reference of what was coming, although my wife and I did. How old was he at this point? He was nine years old at this time. Okay. When I went to put the mask on his face, he has a way of, of expressing himself that will just rip at your heart, hmm. and he was... He was yelling out, I need daddy, I need daddy, I need daddy. I'm, I was trying to reassure him, daddy's right here, daddy's going to be here when you wake up, daddy will be standing right next to you, you know, everything like right, that. Right, right. And, uh, and right before I got the mask to his face, he screamed out, I need mama. Oh. And that's when it hit me that oh. I was not always going to be there to take care of him and make him safe. Huh. At some point in time... I was going to have to trust him to the Lord because I was going to be on my deathbed. And that was the pivot point for me. That's when I realized that since I can't protect him until his natural death, I have to figure out a way to be able to provide for him 40 or 50 years beyond my death. And that's where I started realizing that the only way to do that is to make sure that the financial resources are in place and that his financial resources are structured in such a way that will be able to meet his needs beyond my death. What a revelation at a, I mean, it was a perfect time, correct? Yeah, it was. It was It was a pivot point that, and we all have those. We all have pivot points, and sometimes we just don't open up our mind enough to see it. But my wife and I have never been one that shied away from the reality of the situation. And that was the point where... I really decided I needed to do better financially and build strategies that will build the resources necessary to provide for him. And, uh, and so that's what I set out to do. And that's where the financial black belt came from. Now, I guess you'll probably have some questions about how that came about because that's actually a two-step process that the first part was the financial study that developed out of that pivot point. And then there was another pivot point that I hit. I realized that all the stress that goes along with the, the guilt and the um, having to do better financially and all these different things that were putting stress on us, not to mention his care, I realized I was pretty much killing myself by eating myself to death. I gained, I, I was up to 300 pounds. And I realized that that stress was not good for me because I couldn't be around for him. And I needed to be around for he and my wife, so I needed to get healthy. So I started training back into martial arts. 
And since I started training, I've, I've now dropped 73 pounds. I'm actually down to the 220s, which is really comfortable for me. And I'm healthier. Excellent. But as I went along in martial arts training, I started realizing that the very strategies I was using to achieve financial stability and then financial independence and then to become a prodigious accumulator of wealth, they aligned perfectly with the belt structure of martial arts. Hmm. For every belt, there was a martial art, there was a, for every martial arts belt, there was a financial strategy that I had put in place and that I still execute to this day. That's where the title came from then. Excellent. Exactly. exactly. That's okay. the progression. So the program is very innovative in the sense that the person who executes the program eventually becomes a financial black belt. Now, in martial arts training, the really interesting thing is you don't earn a black belt. You become one. So there's a there's a whole change that goes on from a discipline point of view, an intellectual point of view, an emotional point of view, obviously in my case a financial point of view, you become what you're practicing. And so as the person works through these different belt structures, it creates a certain level of discipline that the person has to have right. in order to achieve the next belt. And by the time the person gets to first degree financial black belt, they're essentially a millionaire because they have a net worth of a million dollars or more. And that's basically through discipline. Is that what you're saying? Is the it's bottom through, line? Yeah, it's a. It's through the application of knowledge and the, the the gaining of discipline that teaches people how to spend, what's priority. It's all based upon a priority, and, and each belt level is the next level priority. And as you're executing on, for conversation's sake, I might be working on my brown belt, which happens to be. Uh, building up a brokerage account to the equivalent of one year's annual gross salary, I'm still executing all the other belts. Okay. All the belts that come before that, I'm still working on those, but my priority is that brokerage account. So in martial arts training, the, the, I study Hapkido. And in Hapkido, the first belt you learn is 13 different joint lock techniques. Well, when you go to your next belt level, you use those 13 mm -hmm, techniques mm -hmm. in a different way, but it's still the same 13 techniques. And then when you go to green belt, you're using them in a different way, but it's still the same 13 basic techniques. And so consequently, what you learn at a financial white belt and a financial yellow belt and a financial orange belt and a financial green belt on up, you continue to use those strategies but you're adding to them and you're getting more and more aggressive financially speaking and the first six belts are defensive in nature they're the emergency fund the income distribution strategy paying down debt things like that that are more defensive in nature and when you get the brown belt and you start moving up towards your black belt it becomes more offensive in nature which yeah. is more investing and things like that that is incredibly interesting. And there's no one else that has used this kind of concept. You're, this is it? This is, this is your concept only? I, well, I've never seen it. I've okay. never seen okay. it out there. And certainly what I've been doing for the past 18 years has been focused on providing financial resources for my son. Of course. Uh, and it just kind of came to me that, hey, this kind of works out. And it, it kind of aligns. And so I started to work with this. 
and I I saw that everything I had done. I mean, that's you know, I'm a second degree financial black belt working on my third degree, and each one of those steps is a different level of millionaire. So as you progress through the the black belt ranks, you're increasing your net worth. You're increasing your worth in general, your financial worth in general, because once you get past first degree financial black belt, it all becomes in growth and investing and stuff like that. So you you start to learn different strategies like options trading and mergers and acquisitions, arbitrage, and different ways to use your money to build money for you. And you can't um, skip any steps, I'm, I'm assuming. I would say that the person who skips a step is never going to really truly become a financial black belt. Okay. They may have the financial resources, like somebody who obviously has six figures. I've never made six figures in my life. So I'm doing all of this with a special needs child on one income and these strategies that I've built. Hmm. So somebody who makes six figures might monetarily have the resources to say, well, I'm a you know, first degree right, financial right. black belt. But they don't have the discipline and the yes, principles. Yes. One event could wipe all that out. Yeah, and, and, the, and the truth of the matter is, in, in this period of time, from the time my son was born till today, I've been laid off three times, and we never really felt the impact of that layoff hmm. because we were positioned to handle it. And it's all about positioning yourself with a priority system that can overcome those times in your lives when you'll be faced with, once again, what seems to be a hopeless situation. And doing the steps... Is there a time factor involved? Like there are time uh, commitments or what? what's involved time-wise? That's a great question. When you think about it, finances touch every aspect of our lives, yet they're the one thing that most people give the least amount of time to. And that's amazing to me. So what they, we have a phrase in, in the Hapkido class that I go to, if you want to make the next belt, you have to show up for the next class. It makes sense. You have to keep training if you're going to achieve the next belt level. So somebody could get to purple belt in my program and be financially stable. And they could drop out and be fine as long as they keep executing on the strategies that they've learned up to that point. But if you're going to want to become a financial black belt, you're going to have to keep showing up. You're going to have to keep studying it. You're going to have to keep giving attention to your finances. It's amazing to me that we will take our hard-earned money and hand it to somebody who we really don't know and trust them to make sure that we have enough money in retirement. That right. that's fascinating. Right. So, you know, the program is designed to teach the person how to yeah. manage their money for themselves. Is this outlined in your book? Yeah, so the Financial Black Belt Academy's Financial Self-Defense Training Manual is a step-by-step, belt-by-belt level explanation of not only the principle, but it gives you the strategic goal, it gives you the strategy to execute, and it basically walks you through the process. It's, 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 uh, it's interesting when people get started, how little they know about finances. They know how to make money. I know I go out and I work a job, but I'm basically I'm exchanging my time and energy for somebody else's financial resources. So is it an easy program to follow? That's a loaded question. And let me, let me tell yeah, you I, I figured that when I thought, no. exactly. Easy if you have the discipline. Okay. But if you have to develop the discipline, there will be times you will struggle. I have been in martial arts now for just over three years. 
I have had injuries. And this is what's going to happen is, you know, there's two, two types of situations where we have injuries, financially speaking. Financial injuries that are forced upon us by our circumstances, i.e. your car breaks down, um, you have a, a natural disaster that you have to recover from or something like that, that's forced upon us. Those kinds of in, uh, wounds have to be have to be prepared for. You have to anticipate that you will probably experience something like that in the course of your life. The other ones are self-inflicted. The self-inflicted wound is credit card debt, student loan debt, not being prepared for an emergency. Those are things we inflict upon ourselves. When I go to martial arts in the training, I have suffered injuries. Some of them are because I just didn't do the technique properly. Other ones, it's just called being 55 years old and trying to do something that a 21-year-old was trying to do. Okay. <laughs> so those are self-inflicted injuries, right? And I was telling uh, a student at, at martial arts that life is all about transition. Some of those transitions are good. Some of those transitions are bad. Some of those transitions are forced upon us and other transitions we force upon ourselves. Hmm. It's not that we're going to face transitions. What's important is how we face them. How prepared are we for what we know is the potential to experience across our lifetime? So this program, once a person starts, literally becomes a lifelong strategy for managing their finances in a way that's designed to give them the retirement that they're looking for, give them the resources that they're looking for, whether it be, you know, to pay for their uh, their children's college or to retire and move to a different area or to travel. They set the goals. They establish their why, and the Financial Black Belt Academy provides their how. That's what it was for me. Life established my why. Life gave me a son with special needs that's going to require resources for the rest of his life. I had to discover my how. And the financial black belt self-defense training is my how to meet his needs for the rest of his life. What kind of feedback have you had as far as results that other people have, have had? Well, I, I started this program unofficially quite a few years ago where I was approached by a, a young college age student who was just getting ready to graduate and he asked me how much I would charge him and I said you know for you I'll mentor you because there's no way you can afford it because you have too much student loan debt so I took him on as pro bono and in two years I developed a strategy that he was able to pay off $35,000 in student loan debt in two years and now he's totally debt free so it works if you're willing to stick with it. Now he had a unique level of discipline that he was willing to go to. Um, I'm working with somebody else right now who is just getting started. They just, they've got their white belt, which means that they understand the financial terminology that we're going to be discussing and using throughout the program, and they're working on their yellow belt. In order to achieve yellow belt, you have to develop a income distribution strategy. That's different from a budget. Right. A budget answers the question, how much money do I have to spend? An income distribution strategy answers the question, what is my priority and how am I going to fund it? So it's built on strategy, it's built on discipline, and it's built on priority. 
And we don't see that in a budget, and that's why a lot of quote-unquote right. budgets fail. But income distribution strategy, my wife and I have used the same strategy literally for 27 years since we've been married. You can go back and we can pull out our original book that we started when we first got married, where we recorded everything. And that eventually grew into the income distribution strategy, which now is so fully developed, we don't really even have to think about what our expenses are because we know that we've got the money set aside to cover our expenses and everything else we can put into the everything else category. And I talk about the, it's called once, obligations, necessities, commitments, and everything else. Once, <laughs> like you've, once, once you've effectively eliminate, eliminate your debt, it changes from once to one. One is obligations, necessities, and everything else. So you're going to make sure you have the resources to pay for your obligations and your necessities, and then everything else just becomes whatever you want it to be. And in our case, we sink a lot of that into investments, and we're able to take those investments and then generate even a greater amount of income from it, which goes to fund some of our things like our Roth IRAs and our HSAs, and that gets funded out of the resources that we're able to build up in our brokerage account, it doesn't even come out of our income anymore. And could you share maybe a couple of the other steps or continue after the yellow belt? Sure, so yellow belt is the IDS. Um, then in order to get to the orange belt, we basically are looking to eliminate all consumer debt or what's con considered um, unsecured debt, which is credit cards, student loan debts, any kind of debt that is an ongoing progression, but not the house, not the secured debt, not the house loan. Okay. Then Orange Belt, I'm sorry, that's, uh, let me back up. Orange Belt is the emergency fund, three to six months of an emergency fund. Green Belt is getting rid of the debt. And then the Blue Belt becomes what's called the Tier 2 emergency fund, which is equal to one year's net salary. So if you make you know $65,000 and you net $38,000, then you want $38,000 in your Tier 2 emergency fund. To get to Purple Belt, that one is your Tier 3 emergency fund, which is one year's gross salary. So if you make $65,000, you want to have $65,000 in there. And that's critically important because that's going to come back to play in if you suffer a, a layoff. If you right. suffer a layoff and you have one year's gross salary, you literally can live easily 18 months in order to find a job. So you've got a, a large buffer there. And I've been through three layoffs, so I know how important that buffer yeah. is. Um, after that, you move from defensive positioning to offensive. Brown belt, you're going to get, you're going to open a brokerage account and you're going to try to stock it full of one year's gross salary. There again, if you make $65,000, you're going to want $65,000 in your brokerage account. Then you're going to move to fully funding your HSA. So even though you're still putting money in your brokerage account, your priority shifts to making sure that you can fully fund an HSA if you have one. Um, that's a great asset because when you hit 65 years old, that HSA turns into basically another IRA that you can now spend for anything. It doesn't have to be held just for medical expenses. And this is all explained in the book. After the brown senior belt, which is the HSA, we go to the red belt. The red belt is fully funding your Roth IRAs. Um, that means if 
for instance, like my myself, my wife is we're one income family. That means I have to account for funding two Roth IRAs up to the full maximum that the IRS will allow me. Mm. After that, that's the uh, the uh, red belt. Red senior belt would move on to paying off your house, which we did in 2009, and then you move to your red black belt, which is um, fully funding your 401k. Now, for those that are under 50, that's $19,000 a year, and for those over 50, it's $25,000 a year, and by the time you get to that point where you have no debt, no house payment, you have your IDSs working, you have your Tier 3 emergency fund, you're fully funding all these accounts, first degree financial black belt, being a millionaire, is just a step away. Once you get that, then you just keep executing those programs over and over and over again and you start in priority shifts to start to learn how to invest from a more strategic point of view so you're going to learn options trading you know how to trade options and make money off of options um, when you get to tier two or when you get to second degree financial black belt you're going to go into arbitrage and how to invest in situations that include mergers and acquisitions and things like that so it becomes more progressive and the person can go as far as they want to go right if they make purple belt and they're content with just not having any consumer debt they're fine they're going to be financially stable at that point but if you want to get to becoming a prodigious accumulator of wealth because you've got some big responsibilities like I do then you're going to want to go on to second and third and fourth degree financial black belt you have made that exquisitely clear and from that I gather your book is probably the same where it's clear and easy to understand and I think that is key for helping people would you agree oh absolutely I wrote the book as an action item that people can actually take it you know it, they're gonna get more out of a seminar they're gonna get a lot more out of individual coaching or training but they literally can take the book and by reading through it and diligently performing the, the uh, activities that are in the book, they will be able to self-promote through the belt ranks. Wow. So everybody benefits. Absolutely. Doesn't matter what your financial position is or your age or your job status, everyone can benefit. Yeah, and, and you got to get started at some point. You know, I, my wife and I started investing in like 1995, but we were very light investors. When my son was born and I hit that pivot point where I realized I was going to be his source of financial uh, security for the future, I really kicked it into hyper mode. I started right. studying the billionaires like Warren Buffett and Carl Icahn because I wanted to know how they became billionaires. Because if I could just replicate 1% of what they did, I would easily have several million dollars right. for my son's care. Right, right. I just wanted to get just enough knowledge from them that I can start replicating that. And that's been my passion. But there again, my why is humongous. You're, tell us about your coaching service. I think, what do you offer and to whom? So right now what I'm trying to do is get into small businesses. This is a, like, it's got three branches to it. The first branch is getting into small businesses as an employee resource. They will actually come in, I contract with the business, and then I'll come in and I'll do seminars at the business for their employees. 
and and then provide coaching throughout the year for that small business uh, group. The second one is to work with colleges, and I'm trying to get the curriculum into the colleges so they can start teaching college-age kids how to do this. And so that would be a licensing. I want to license the information to colleges so they can provide the coaching and they can provide the instruction as part of their financial literacy courses that they offer. And then the third one is individuals. Now, I do a limited number of individuals strictly because it, it's very time-consuming. If they're local in the Maryland area, lower Pennsylvania area, upper Virginia area, I'll try to meet with them once a month and work them through the process. If it's distance, I would do a Skype meeting, do emails and phone calls and stuff like that, but they also have to have a copy of the book so they know exactly what I'm talking about. So they'd have to go out and buy a copy from Amazon. The book is available on Amazon. Um, or they can go to my website, which is financialblackbelt.us. They could go there and go to the media page and they can click on the link that will take them to Amazon so they can purchase the book. Uh, but one-on-one -on -one coaching is a little bit more time-consuming and it's really, um, it, it creates like a self-discipline. The person has to have a higher level of discipline because they are accountable. It's kind of like taking online okay, courses. Okay, right. Yeah. And I'm hoping to eventually start to get some webinars going, but that's still in the working. But you are available as well. If people buy your book, you would be available to answer questions or email or even a one-time coaching session or something like that. Is that correct? Absolutely. I'm always open to helping other people. I mean, I know my struggles. I know where I've been. It's not easy. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where when you have a question, you need to know to go, where to go. To get the to get the information, so I'm always open to providing an email response. Um, it can't be every day, but I I will answer questions as need be. If you know if it helps somebody move along the process, absolutely. And as far as your son is, how is he? He's he's doing good. He hasn't had praise the Lord surgeries for a couple years now. Um, we he had eleven one in which he ended up having to lose his left kidney because of a growth on it. Um, so we've been through a lot. Right. Uh, we continue to struggle. There's, there's a level of static stress that comes with a special needs child. Mm -hmm. But we're in a better position today than we were 18 years ago. Um, and and he, he does well. You know, we still have our struggles. He still has a lot of anxieties. Um, we have a lot of things we, we have to nurture and, and address every day. It never gets old. You also have a great so, attitude. Many people have said, I don't know how you do it, and I right. tell them, if it was your child, you would do it. That's it's right. It's just, it becomes your normal, and as difficult as it is, it's, it's, what, we, it's what we do, and we're not going to stop doing it because it's not his fault right. that he's experienced what he's experienced. It's what, it's what God's given us, and you know, I'm not, I'm not going to turn my back on that. I'm going to go to my grave making sure I've done everything right. I could do to make sure he's positioned to be cared for for the rest of his life. Well, that's an awesome position to be in and one that he may never be able to appreciate or thank you in, in as much as you need to be. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, he has probably not, the, not that concept. Am I 
guessing that. I mean, this yeah. is all he's ever known, you know, and yet you have taken this upon yourself. That's that speaks volumes, and to have that attitude for your son's future, there needs to be. Yeah, more. I mean, this this is one of those situations where if you really expect to be thanked for. You might as well give it up. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) No kidding. Well, this has been concise. And as I mentioned earlier, very clear. I really sincerely appreciate that for the sake of my listeners. Also, it's been motivating and challenging and encouraging. I mean, you have covered all the bases. And this I'm excited to share. I'm excited for my listeners that they can tap into your resources, both in your book and with coaching or or just the contact itself with you. I mean, thank you so much. This has been incredibly informative as well. And I really sincerely appreciate that. Is there anything you want to say to sum it up? I would uh, I would definitely just encourage people to stop by the website, and that's uh, financialblackbelt.us. There's a media page there. You can hear all the podcasts that I've talked about this topic on. There's resources there. There's uh, some of my other books. Um, one thing that my son has taught me is how to be a servant, Aww. and I cover that in my book Empathy and in my book The Plan. It talks about how to be a servant to those who are struggling and those who are hurting. And um, I I encourage your readers to not only pick up the Financial Black Belt Guide, but consider learning how to take your level of um, love for others to a deeper level by reading those books. Very good. That's an excellent summary. I thank you. So thank you, Ken, for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope. Obviously, you filled the bill. You never gave up, and you're making sure that your son has that opportunity to continue his life in that that he's taken care of. Thank you, Carol, for the opportunity to share with your listeners. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.